Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Alot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. My guest today is Dr. David Prentice, Vice President and Research Director at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, located in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. This interview will be a state of the union, so to speak, regarding COVID-19 vaccines, and it is the first of what I hope will be many podcasts that we record with Charlotte Lozier. For those who may not be familiar with this organization, its mission statement maintains, in part, quote, the goal of the Charlotte Lozier Institute is to promote deeper public understanding of the value of human life, motherhood, and fatherhood, and to identify policies and practices that will protect life and serve both women's health and family well-being. Our profound conviction is that the insights available through the best science, sociology, and psychology cannot help but demonstrate that each and every human is not only fearfully and wonderfully made, but blessed to be born at this time in human history." Unquote. I'm honored to have Dr. Prentice with us today. So Dr. David Prentice, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thanks, Joe. Good to be with you. It's, as I said, it's an honor to have you with us today, but looking forward to this interview for a while. So you are a brand new guest on our podcast, and as a brand new guest, uh, I always ask if you can tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience, leading up to your current position at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Glad to do it, Joe. Well, um, I'm a farm boy. I was born and raised in Kansas on the farm. And being out on the farm, you can't help but become interested in biology, surrounded by animals and plants and so on. So it piqued my interest very early on. Uh, went through school, more and more interested in science, did some of the typical, you know, science fair stuff, things like that. Uh, got my uh, college degrees in cell biology and my PhD in biochemistry and went to the Los Alamos National Lab for my postdoc, again, kind of in-depth in cell biology and what makes cells tick, if you will. One person uh, characterized it as, oh, you're a cell smasher. Well, yeah, I do. I like to do that. You know, look inside the cells and see what they're doing and what makes them run and how they all work together to make the body run. Spent uh, a number of years in academia at Indiana State University primarily and a joint appointment with IU Med School. And then started getting questions uh, from the public and from pro-life groups about, can you tell us, can you explain stem cells? Can you explain cloning? And I had a friend who got elected to Congress who said, you know, nobody up here speaks science. Could you come translate for me? So I started spending a few summers, uh, just a week or two or three in Washington, D.C., uh, the District of Chaos, as one of my friends calls it, uh, but, you know, became more involved in trying to translate science for policymakers in particular, but for, for the public as well. I love to teach, have always loved to do that, uh, still teach a course at uh, the JP2 Institute at Catholic University in D.C. each year, 
and we talk about in-depth science, but try to translate that to the public and the policymakers and how to do that. And uh, after a few years of being in D.C., I uh, worked first for the Family Research Council and then have been over with the Charlotte Lozier Institute now for it's about six or so years. Uh, we're a pretty small group, but I think we cast a big shadow. Yeah. Well, you cast a big shadow here at the NCBC. So, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as we go on. So, so David, in the, in the podcast introduction, I read a bit of the, organizational's, the organizational mission statement, but I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more? What is the Charlotte Lozier Institute and what is its purpose? Well, I think yeah, our, our motto might say it best, very short, succinct, but to the point, science and statistics for life. If you look at it, uh, for really until the Charlotte Lozier Institute was organized, the pro-life movement had no sort of scientific presence. Right. Yeah. Uh, there were there were a few folks. Some of your folks there at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. A few others of us who were going around trying to explain science and and uh, make sure it had held to uh, the ethical bar. But Chuck Donovan had the idea that we really need an organization focused on making sure science uh, is explained to people, but from a pro-life perspective. And in, in a real sense, we're unique. The Charlotte Lozier Institute is, uh, you might say, the preeminent pro-life think tank. Now, think tank brings up a certain idea. Uh, we like to call ourselves an action tank because we have uh, a number of staff. We're pretty small, but we're, we've been growing quite a bit over the years. We also have what we call associate scholars, about 70 of them. And these are folks who are academics or out in professional life and so on, in science, in medicine, social science and law. They've got a full-time job, but they've got a heart for life and a heart for speaking and writing and engaging in that battle to protect life. And so we, we leverage that uh, to try and make sure that policymakers, as well as the general public understand the ethic and the science involved in being pro-life. What does that really mean? We have uh, long in-depth peer-reviewed pieces that people do. We have shorter sort of writings they do. We have uh, people doing op-eds and blog posts and testifying all over the U.S. and even all over the world in terms of legislation right. or legal sorts of things. But uh, again, trying to, to speak the truth about life into yeah. the culture. Yeah. And I just, I just want to say to our, to our listeners, there's a lot of information out there. There's good information, there's bad information. And, and I know myself and many others, we, we don't know who to trust in terms of these scientific questions. And so I, I very highly recommend the Charlotte Lozier Institute for those who have not heard of it. Um, go to the website, 
lozierinstitute.org. We got to get that in. Uh, we'll get that in a couple of times. But but um, as I said in the as I said earlier, the the NCBC we we rely on your information. We trust your information, and thank you for being there because you're great service um, to us, to the church, and really to the world. So thank you for that, um, David. Can you tell us uh, what is your current position at Charlotte Lozier, and what are your responsibilities? My current position is vice president and research director, mm-hmm. which is an exalted way to say head geek. <laughs> uh, to try and help herd uh, or I think deploy might be a better term. All of these great elite scholars and professionals out there to, to speak that truth about pro-life into the culture. Uh, and I, I already told you this before, but I just had to laugh when you were going to ask me about a typical day. Well, that's my next question. I want to know what a typical day looks yeah, like. I, I don't know if there is a day that is typical, but in general, I do rise very early. Remember, I said I was a farm boy. Yeah. So yeah. I still get up between 3 and 4 a.m. every day. Uh, spend some quiet time, uh, spend time catching up on emails. Uh, a lot of the day, frankly, is devoted to reading, mm-hmm. uh, trying to see what's the latest scientific paper on this subject or that subject, and just going through all the various publications that are out there over the last few days. Uh, we have, obviously, any organization has its meetings, so there are a few meetings oh, yeah. throughout the week, you know, and that might come up during the day. But a lot of it has to do then with... Uh, Reading, writing about the science, translating it, if you will, answering questions, uh, especially in terms of our our topic today in terms of vaccines and COVID-19. But we get we get questions uh, from all over the world, from all over the U.S. We get questions directly from policymakers on the Hill, out in the states. other professionals, you know, I read about this and so on, and and from the public as well. So yeah. it, it's a varied existence. Yep. Uh, I don't know that there's anything typical about any one day other than it. it's joy to be able to, to speak that truth about life into yeah. the culture. And you humbled yourself to come on our podcast today too. So Oh, no, I, I'm looking forward to this because it's a great opportunity to get more of that truth out there. Yeah. All right. So, well, let's get into that truth. All right. So, let's 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 talk about COVID nineteen. So, kind of set the picture a little bit. So, what David has been the role of the Charlotte Lozier Institute with regard to the COVID nineteen pandemic? And I'm wondering, can you tell us how maybe this role has changed or evolved from the beginning of the pandemic in, in early 2020 till today? So, kind of give us an overview. Yeah, and, and you know, you you mentioned our being a trusted resource uh, for pro-life science and law in general, and we kind of fell into that role in terms of COVID nineteen and the pandemic and the vaccines because let's face it, the cer- certain governmental entities have not exactly lived up to expectations in terms of trust. Hmm, okay. Uh, well stated. 
anyway, trying to be a little circumspect here, yeah. but uh, you know, people had questions again. Right. And we were already by the spring of 2020 identified as as knowledgeable and trustworthy in terms of explaining the science involved. So, you know, as the pandemic started and you started to see things then shut down, uh, February, March, on into April of 2020, we got lots of questions. Yep. And it was interesting. One of the main questions tends tended to hinge not so much on the virus and infections, but on the vaccines that had been proposed and at that point, in fact, had been started in several cases to try and and intervene. Uh, we answered some questions about certain types of treatments and so on, but there was a keen interest in terms of vaccines. Right. And, you know, we started to look at it, that. Um, it was a time of, of a great boom in technology, if you will, in terms of vaccines. There used to be just one way to make a vaccine for a virus. You threw the virus into a dish of cells. The virus infects the cells. It, the cells make lots of virus. Yeah. You pop open those cells. You get back that virus. You purify it and weaken or kill it. And it goes into your arm. That's how viral vaccines have been made for decades. Well, all of a sudden, there were five ways to make a viral vaccine. So we were studying that, trying to see what was the science behind all of that. And then again, uh, one of our roles is to try and explain the science. Right. And that's what we're going to do a little bit uh, later in the podcast, yep. well, I hope. I know we'll get more into that. But but it became then, you know, as we're answering these questions, people are going, oh, what is this? And what is what do they mean by warp speed? And you know, is is it going to be safe? Is it is the science good? And and a key thing, because we're focused on pro-life ethics, is also are they using any illicit biological material? Cell lines that are derived from abortion being the, the key one, because in the past, some vaccines were made that way. So we're reading through all the scientific papers trying to find out how are they making this? doing all that, uh, more and more questions. We said, well, finally, we ought to just sort of put together a table of these because there was a boom in people's uh, desire, shall we say, to develop a vaccine. Everybody wanted to have their own vaccine. Every country had two or three, if not a dozen. And so we, we started to do that, and, and it just have kind of evolved from there until we've tried to put up um, – updates every so often in terms of those details about the vaccines. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit more about that because um, the the resources that you're talking about, sort of the, the short chart and the full chart that they have, that they've been yeah. very helpful for us. So um, can you tell us about the, as you said, it's continually updated and it is, I think the latest update was June 2nd of 2021. Uh, July 2nd? Ju July 2nd, my bad. My bad. And, and um, there should be one coming up before the end of August for the, the newest version. Good. So the, the article is entitled, What You Need to Know About the COVID-19 Vaccines. And at the beginning of this article, um, there are two charts, as we mentioned, the, the short chart and the full chart. And I'll, I'll put uh, links to those in the show notes. But David, can you explain what these two charts are? Well, the, 
the short chart focuses just on we've mentioned this before the warp speed mm -hmm. candidates well there were the federal government in the u.s decided they wanted to push certain vaccine candidates try and get them developed very rapidly hence they're calling them the warp speed, warp speed. candidates uh, and obviously uh, from some sort of self-interest in the U.S., people really weren't interested in what was going on in Germany or Israel or Brazil. They wanted to know what was going to be available to them. So that's that's the, what we call the brief or the short chart. It just looks at those. There were eight candidates. And that chart actually just looks primarily at that ethical question. Is this vaccine designed or developed somehow using those abortion-derived cell lines? Is it produced, which used to be the old way and the only way you actually looked at that? And initially, that's all we'd looked at was the development phase. You know, how am I going to make this and so on? And then okay, you produce it. This is how it's actually made in the laboratory. This is what goes into your arm because there wasn't any information beyond that. Mm -hmm. And our focus, again, we're, we're the geeks. We're <laughs> looking at published scientific evidence, not news stories and, and trying to, to parse words of various people, but what did they actually do? In the scientific papers, they have to give the specific details of how they're putting this together, how it's being produced. And then what we found out was they were doing some post-production tests, what we ended up calling confirmatory tests, because mm -hmm. they were tests where they would essentially give the vaccine to other cells in culture or to animals to see if it made the particular target protein that you want your immune system right. to react against or or if the animals made the antibodies. So the short chart just focuses on those eight and and in particular, whether they use abortion-derived cells for design, production, and confirmatory tests. Right. And actually, just for, for those who may have not seen this chart, it's a really a very user-friendly chart because you use, it's the, uh, the green diamonds, correct? Yeah, green squares. Green squares and red triangles. Red, red diamonds. Red diamonds. I see. I, I knew diamonds was in there yeah, somewhere. And, and we tried to make it very user friendly. It is. The reason there are two different shapes in there is originally I had green squares or red squares. And then one of my colleagues said, you know, I'm colorblind. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> oh, okay. So we'll use color and shape difference and so on. And 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 I'll just point out uh, ahead of time, and people look at that and they'll go, okay, green, I get that idea, and, and red, okay, that's bad. But then you've got somewhere you've got both. Right, yep. Well, when we looked at those scientific papers where they were explaining the tests they did on their product, they did some tests where they didn't use abortion-derived cells, and then – Disappointingly, they did some tests where they did. Right. Yep. The the full chart just goes into much more detail on that, uh, gives you information about uh, what type of, of vaccine production technique is used. We talked about there are five ways to make them now. Yep. Uh, what country is pushing this yep. particular vaccine? 
how many doses it would take, or supposedly if they, they do it, what phase of trial or testing they're at. And it gives again that little red square, I mean, green square. Now, so you know, now, now you're messing it up. Yeah, it's the green square, the red diamond, or sometimes it's both. In some cases, they haven't published the information, so you're just going to get a nice little question. Question mark. mark, yep. But then we also put a link directly to a, a web link to the information yep. where we got that. People say, oh, I can't believe that so-and-so company actually did this test with fetal cells. Well, follow that link to the scientific paper. You'll find it. Right. Yeah. I, I have to tell you that I'm glad the Charlotte Lozier Institute doesn't charge a commission for all the times that we use those charts because I have I have sent those links. I can't tell you how many people I've sent those links to in our own consults. And I've used them in presentations, both in-person presentations and in, you know, Zoom meeting type presentations. And people love them. I, it's like it, it, it puts things, it puts the information together in a very easy to understand very concise way. And there's really good information, particularly the long chart. I like the long chart better or the full chart, I, I should say I, better. I do too. But then, you know, I, I like geeky detail, but, <laughs> yeah, but that, that was our desire that people be able yep. to, to just glance at it quickly and, and get a sense of, well, you know, no, I don't want that one. Or yes, that's one I'm, I'm hoping comes up versus, you know, if they have the curiosity and the interest, they can track down those links and look at all the details and so on, but they're made for people yeah. to use. Yep. Excellent. All right. So let's get into some of what I would call the money questions here. They, these are these are my questions, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they're questions that others want to have answered as well. So first and most importantly, David, when will, when if ever, will we have a COVID-19 vaccine that is free from any connection with abortion-derived cell lines? That's a great question. We wish we already had one. Mm -hmm. We don't. And, and maybe we ought to just quickly say, uh, if you look at the current who have received emergency use approval. So in the U.S., the Pfizer-BioNTech, yep. Moderna, yep. and Johnson & Johnson all have some sort of entanglement at some level, some more remote than others. But there's something there with an abortion-derived cell line. Uh, all eight of those warp speed so candidates have, have something. So Sanofi GSK is not here yet. And we were kind of hoping because they hadn't published their information. And then they published it and yeah, they use abortion-derived cells in a test. Uh, Novavax and so on. The There are others coming up. They're not quite through various clinical trials yet. But there's one called Covaxin. Yes, I, I uh, wanted you to talk about that one. Okay. Derived in India. Yep. Uh, and they have a definite need there, and they were trying to meet that need. We've looked at the scientific publications at this point in time, can't find any sort of connection. So, you know, that's a very promising candidate. It's gotten emergency approval from WHO and from India, and... Our understanding is there are people that are trying to bring that to the U.S. and get the U.S. FDA to look at it. There's no there's no good way to put a timeline on that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it might be by the end of the year, 2021, but it might be longer. 
we don't know. Yeah. There's actually a company, it's really interesting, uh, where I live west of Philadelphia, there's a company called Ocugen, which I, I think is a company that's seeking to mm -hmm. bring it to the United States. It's about 10 miles north of where I live. And I've actually, I've actually emailed them, I've called them to say, hey, I, you know, can I you know, get some information about when or if and when this vaccine is going to be available? And they've never, they've never contacted me back. But um, yeah, I, I'm just hoping that yeah. it, it does come out. And, you know, we're hearing about you know, large numbers or, or percentages of people who haven't been vaccinated. And, and some, you know, some, I, I, you got to think, well, I, I, you know, that some uh, percentage of that are people who just don't want, just for conscience reasons. And if this is a, you know, this is a, you know, if Covaxin gives us that, uh, you know, gives us a, a, a abortion derived cell line free vaccine, I, I would think a lot of people would take it. Plus, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this one, Covaxin is a, I, I like to term it an, an old school vaccine. It, it works the, <laughs> yeah. it works the, uh, you know, the whole virus vaccine or the, um, or yeah, you, you it, can talk about it, that a little uses, bit. Uh, it uses old school, or old school technology. Methods. Yep. But yeah, whole, whole virus might be another good way to put it. Uh, you know, they take longer to make, which is, I think, the primary reason that you didn't see from that category in warp speed. Right. But there's a lot of background. Yeah. on whole virus vaccines yeah. and a lot of work has been done there are a couple of others out there we're we're also watching there's uh one by a company called curevac in germany yep it's actually an mrna vaccine similar in some respects to pfizer and moderna but they didn't do any tests using abortion derived cells whereas pfizer and moderna, and moderna did. did do some on yeah. those and and we can we can talk at some point about, you know, how remote is remote and all those things. But, yeah, bottom line is, uh, and the Vatican has said this very clearly, your first choice is supposed to be one that has no connection, right. a, a completely clean, if you will, alternative. Uh, if that's not available, which, which it's not, not yep. at this point, then you kind of go through this wrestling match with your conscience and and with an informed conscience to look at the the various aspects of some of these other things yeah all right so let's i'd like to talk a little bit about the currently available covid-19 vaccines particularly the moderna the pfizer and the johnson and johnson so can you can you clarify for us um, exactly what these vaccines do what their efficacy is um, how well do they mitigate the symptoms of COVID? Do they prevent transmission? These are all questions that we get a lot of different information about. So why don't we just kind of give us a give us a trusted perspective on these? Let, let's start first in, in in the type of vaccine, which gets at what they do. So okay. here, these represent two of the new technologies that we've mentioned. Uh, both Pfizer and Moderna are what are called M. RNA mm -hmm. vaccines, little basic cell biology and molecular biology. But uh, please be basic, because you're uh, you may but, be a geek, but I'm a dope when it comes to science. But, so, uh, and and we've got a great analogy for that. My colleagues and I at Charlotte Lozier Institute have worked up uh, an mRNA is a recipe for a protein. So think about your DNA, your whole genome, as a big recipe book. It's got a recipe for every type of protein that your cells or your entire body might need at some point in your life. 
huge collection. Let's say, though, you decide one day you want to make uh, chocolate cake. Well, what you would do is go in and this tells you how old I am. Xerox a copy of that recipe. Okay. The, the modern idea being you would print off that page. Yeah. But just that recipe. You don't need the whole book. You just need that page. Our cells do the same thing. They don't want to make 20,000 different proteins all at once. They want one. And so what they do is they go in and copy just that one particular recipe, that gene. And the DNA copies into what's called mRNA, messenger RNA. It's a message. It's a recipe. That message then is taken to the cell's kitchen. So if you know I want to go make my chocolate cake, I take my one-page recipe, I go to the kitchen, I start mixing the ingredients together, I follow the directions step by step by step. The cell does the same thing. That mRNA recipe is just a string of code letters, genetic code, that codes for the amino acids that go into a protein, just like a string of beads. And the kitchen, in this case, in the cell, are big complexes of proteins and enzymes called ribosomes. The ribosomes are the kitchen. They read that recipe step by step, just reading right down the line, read the code, and they translate it. And that's the, that's the term that we use in molecular biology. It's translation from a genetic code into amino acids, a string one right after the other like beads you put those together and you've got a protein when you're done so what the the mrna vaccines do is they have focused on just one protein on the coronavirus and the listeners have probably seen all those lovely diagrams and pictures of the coronavirus and you've got all these little knobs sticking out from it those are the Those spike proteins, right? The spike proteins. I got, oh, this is Named in song and story now, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but if you think about it, that's the face on a wanted poster. That's what our immune system would see if the virus actually gets into our system. That's the first thing they'd see, all these little things on the outside. They're not going to burrow down inside the virus to try and look at other things. They look at that spike protein on the outside. So. A vaccine is just priming our immune system to recognize a certain foreigner, if you will, in this case, a foreign protein. You take that recipe for spike protein, they actually put it together in the laboratory. There are no cells involved in this, which is one part of making it very rapid to produce. And it's a string of genetic letters. So the, the, genome sequence of the virus went onto the internet January 10th, 2020. Within 24 hours, both Pfizer and Moderna scientists had figured out the sequence that they needed for their spike protein recipe with a few changes to make it a little more stable when you get it in your vaccine, as well as to sort of make it a target. So they make it in the lab, this string of, of genetic letters, and then they encapsulate it in a lipid nanoparticle. 
Ooh, that's a big term. Fancy term for a very small oil droplet. It protects that little, very unstable mRNA recipe. And it also is a lot like the membranes on our cells. So the two kind of like two oil droplets getting together, it delivers that little recipe in the cell. Now that that genetic recipe, that mRNA just gets into the queue then in the kitchen with the ribosomes. The ribosomes say, okay, I'm making insulin protein or I'm making this protein. Oh, here's another one, spike protein. Oh, I haven't done that one before, but yep. We'll make it too. Our cells make that and then stick it on the outside of the cell, and our immune system then can see it and go, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be here. Make antibodies, make cell based types of uh, responses to it. Yeah. So that if the real coronavirus ever shows up with its spike protein on the outside, our immune system goes, I've seen your face on the wanted poster and I'm going after you. So that's the mRNA technology. So that's the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. Right. So let's, let's go back to my question. Can we, with that, how that the technology, um, can you talk about the efficacy of it, um, it in terms of, in terms of COVID-19 mitigating symptoms, preventing transmission? How, how are those, how are those working for Moderna and Pfizer? It looks like very well is the short answer for both Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, they went through their three stages of clinical trials, up to 40 some thousand people tested on. And what they found was 94 to 95% efficacy for both Pfizer and Moderna. They were really within about a percentage point of each other. That's what now, my doctor said this morning, too. I had a doctor's appointment and he said that. Okay. Thing, yeah. So. Maybe he was looking at your materials. I don't know. He could have been. <laughs> you know, and, and it's some people are going to go, wait a minute. That that just doesn't seem believable because I've gotten the flu vaccine and it's only about 40 percent or 50 percent. That's true. Flu vaccine is notorious to being only about 40 to 60 percent on a good year. And sometimes not as good, but it turns out. That efficacy puts them in the realm of a whole lot of other vaccines that we already have. Uh, most viral vaccines that we have actually land in, in that area. Uh, the measles vaccine is 93 to 97%. The new Shingrix, shingles vaccine, which, which I got. by the way, is not made. Yep. In an abortion drive cell line, it's yep. the one recommended now, the ethical one, 91 to 97%. Polio, 99% effect. It's pretty good. The, the new Ebola vaccine, also not made in abortion derived cells, almost 100%. So it's actually in a good ballpark there. Now, that efficacy, the original one was derived because they were only looking to see symptoms. It, you're going to check whether people that got the vaccine showed symptoms versus people that didn't get the vaccine. Very good efficacy. It's not 100%, by the way, folks. Don't think that it's going to be 100%. Keep that in mind. But very, very good. Uh, a lot of people have complained, but we don't know the long-term effects. We didn't know it at the point where the emergency use approval came up 
about whether it affected transmission or decreased deaths and so on. Well, that, that's right, because that wasn't what they were looking for. They were rushing to get this into people's arms to start protecting them. As time has now gone on, it looks like both of them are also preventing transmission. Data out of Israel, which is one of the countries around the globe that it has most of its population vaccinated now. It looks like it stops transmission or at least decreases it. You could still, even if you've been vaccinated, there is the potential that you might acquire the virus. You don't have any symptoms whatsoever, but you might be able to pass it on. But it looks like even in that, what's called asymptomatic transmission, it decreases that considerably. We now have data that it also, the mRNA vaccines also decrease hospitalizations, obviously greatly increase deaths. You could still be reinfected, like we say, but what they're finding is even with this uh, Delta variant that has started to crop up and seems to be transmitted more. Some people who had these vaccines in the past are getting Delta, but you're tending to see very few of them have any severe symptoms, very, very mild symptoms and so on. So it looks like it's working. It looks like it continues to work against the variants, maybe maybe not 95%, but maybe 80% or better for even the Delta. Uh, and, and I think there's some good indications that it is safe. now. Obviously, you have to keep watching. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that is because we hear things. And again, as I said before, there's good information out there. There's bad information out there. Um, are there any safety issues with the mRNA vaccines? Um, and and is, should, should people be worried about them? I guess that's the question. Are And are there any things that may come up in the future that we may not be, well, obviously, we're not going to be aware of them yet. But are there anything that you would say? Um, could possibly come up in the future. You can never tell, of course. Right. And that's why you, you continually need to be vigilant mm -hmm. to watch. And, and there's actually a system set up uh, in the U.S. called VAERS, uh, V-A-E-R-S, that's monitoring this. What people do is anything that happened to them, unrelated or not to the vaccine, usually goes into that system. So you can't just look at those numbers and, and say, okay, uh, there were X number of deaths after the vaccine because they're showing up in VIRS. That could have been, you know, somebody could have gotten the vaccine, walked down the street and in front of a bus. Well, their death was not due to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But it did occur after they were vaccinated. The VIRS system is just raw numbers that didn't have to be investigated. Most of the, the things now you worry about, and I, I don't know that worry is really the right okay. term. All right. What are the kinds of, of side effects or adverse events? Well, for the most parts, it's the typical thing. Your arm is sore. Uh, you might spike a little fever for a day. Uh, you might have some fatigue for a day and so on. Maybe some muscle pain. Uh that tends to all go away. It tends to be fairly quick and go away usually within a couple of days. There are some indications that for certain groups, you need to have a, a higher awareness. Somebody who has had severe allergic reactions in the past need to be watching 
those people. Doesn't mean necessarily that they should or shouldn't get the vaccine. They need to talk with their doctor about that for their own particular situation. But uh, the incidence tends to be about what you see with other vaccines, one to two to three per million injections or million people vaccinated. Uh, what you do is you watch, especially if you know that you've had severe allergies in the past, you make sure that they have the epinephrine ready if you go in to get your vaccine. And I know people that did just that and ended up not having a problem, but you still want to be vigilant. For certain groups, it looks like the mRNA vaccines may induce some myocarditis, some heart inflammation or some inflammation of the sac around the heart. What they've tended to see that is mostly in young males, teenaged males, or maybe into their 20s. They tend to be very, very mild, but you still want to watch these kids. Uh, they actually notice that by looking at the VAERS numbers, not the raw numbers, because you you got all sorts of reports. But what they saw was you started to see a number of young men in particular who started to show up with uh, reports of some myocarditis, some some heart inflammation at a higher rate than you might normally expect. Frankly, teenage males do tend to show that a lot, but it does tend to be mild. And this seems to maybe exacerbate that some. Doesn't mean that they should or shouldn't get the vaccine. Just if you do decide to get the vaccine, you watch for that. Uh, you know, beyond that, the other things you worry about are, are things that, you know, for people that have certain risk factors, especially people that have uh, non-functioning or weakened immune systems. It's not so much a problem in terms of an adverse event for those people, but it may take actually a third shot they're finding before you start to get a good immunity develop in those people, uh, an additional booster, if you will. Down the road, who knows? You know, when, when, again, when people ask, well, what are the long-term effects? We have no idea. We've not even known about this virus for just a year and a half. We don't have any long-term knowledge of the virus and its effects. And, you know, the vaccines, even if you started from the very first clinical trial, it's barely over a year. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff. I, I, as you were speaking, I was wondering, and, and this this question isn't on the script, so it might be a bit unfair. But I, one of the things um, you hear some people talking about is the effect of these M these mRNA vaccines on women's fertility. Is there? Um, can, can you comment on that? Uh, yes, we've spent a lot of time looking at that. We've gotten those questions too. We've seen a number of claims, and again, going to the the valid science. What we've found is up to this point, the current science shows that the mRNA vaccines do not affect fertility. They do not cause miscarriage or increase the rate of miscarriage. They do not affect the baby in the womb. Uh, 
we've actually done the deep dive in terms of the science. There was a claim in terms of fertility by a, a doctor that the spike protein was similar in parts of its structure to a protein in the placenta. And his theory was then that if you make antibodies against spike protein, you'll make antibodies against that placental protein as well. And you'll either cause miscarriages or you'll cause infertility. So we we did the geek thing ourselves. There's a, a protein called BLAST where you can actually look deep down at a protein's structure. We did the comparison side by side. There's no similarity. And, and we looked at it in different ways and so on. And we also looked at the way the protein folds. Proteins are have kind of a three-dimensional structure. If you think about uh, a protein as a string of yarn, and then you start knotting it up and folding it back and forth and put a, an additional level of structure on there, it can fold and wrap itself around and so on. For the protein part where this guy hypothesized, that there might be some similarity and cause this problem. It's buried inside and an antibody would never see it. Uh, and it's interesting too, if you look at some of the numbers, uh, even during the Pfizer clinical trial, there were a number of women that got pregnant during the trial. Now, like any clinical trial, usually you exclude pregnant women or you tell them not to get pregnant during the trial because you don't want a confounding factor right. and just out of an abundance of caution. Still, there were a number of women who did get pregnant during that time. I think it was a small number, maybe 23 or so. But that tells you, number one, that, okay, they can still become pregnant, you're not inducing infertility. There was one miscarriage. It wasn't among the women who got the vaccine. It was among the women who got the saline placebo. Right, the placebo, yeah. So, and, and there are other sorts of things we've looked at. It doesn't, uh, the, the science again at this point, the published science, the valid stuff, shows that it doesn't increase the rates of miscarriage. Uh, people have have made some claims where they actually looked at the wrong table in one of these scientific papers. And they go, oh, it's like 80 percent miscarriage. Well, no, actually, if you looked at the correct table in the numbers, it was lower than you might have expected normally. But we still have to wait and see how things come out. Uh, yeah. All right, we'll do. All right, so we've talked uh, quite a bit about mRNA vaccines. I'd like to talk, uh, ask you the same questions about uh, viral vector vaccines, particularly the right. Johnson & Johnson, because that's the third one that's available here in the U.S. So, David, briefly, can you give us a quick overview? What is a viral vector-based vaccine? And then let's go back and ask those same questions. How about Johnson & Johnson in terms of, of efficacy? Um, how well does it mitigate symptoms of COVID-19? And does it prevent transmission? Right. So the viral vector vaccines, Johnson & Johnson, but there are some others out there that you may hear about. AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca. is another yep. one coming up. These but that's not available. AstraZeneca is only available in Europe right now, correct? It's not available here in yeah, the U.S. Yeah, a few other places around the globe. Uh, to my knowledge, they haven't yet applied to the U.S. FDA. Not sure if they will. Um, 
but the the idea here is instead of that little oil droplet that lipid droplet to carry the recipe the mrna into our cells to make the spike protein like Pfizer and Moderna do. Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, the viral vectors, what they do is they use a virus, basically. That's why we call it viral vector. But the virus is now not going to cause an infection. It's basically just the mailman delivering now the, the genetic information. And so, again, what they do is they start with a string of genetic letters. They put that together in terms of what they want the cell to make. It's going to be spike protein, not giving away anything. Almost all of these target that spike protein because, again, that's the face on the wanted poster for the immune system. If you're going to make a virus, you have to have cells. There's no getting around it. So these little lipid droplets you can do in the lab, in test tubes and so on, but if you're gonna make a virus, whether it's a weakened one, whether it's a, a mailman just carrying it and so on, you have to have cells. And so they put this little code, that's gonna be their template to carry into the cells, into our cells, into some cells in culture. Unfortunately, in most cases, when they're doing this, the type of virus they want to use to carry is called an adenovirus, which in and of itself is kind of a, a cold virus, generic virus, not a big deal, except the preferred cell to grow these viruses in the lab is an abortion-derived cell line. Right. It's usually one calls, and we, we, we geeks get into all these code letters, but HEK293. Yep. Your listeners might hear about that one. Yep. Or PER.C6 is the other one that's been used. But usually it's the HEK293. It's, it's a cell line. It's what's called a continuous cell line. Some people decades ago took an aborted baby and took some tissue from that baby and started cells growing in the lab. It's no longer tissue by the time those cells are growing in the dish, but the cells will keep growing in the lab. And after a period of time, they actually do what's called transformation. They immortalize that cell. So it'll keep growing forever and ever in the dish. And so you go from one to 10 to 100 to, you know, a continuous growing number of cells. It's, it's a nice trick for somebody who likes to work in the lab. Your starting material is what's problematic here. And, and I might point out there are plenty of other cell lines growing that are licitly derived from adult tissue, even from miscarriage and so on. But these people focused on the aborted baby, her tissue, getting those cells. So we've got a little ethical problem here in terms of the production facility. That's what these cells are, is the production facility for these viral vector vaccines. So again, they, they package that little genetic code in a virus now. It's weakened, it won't cause an infection, but it will act as the mailman, deliver that to our cells. Once in our cells, 
it turns out that actually does potentially go into our nucleus. It may or may not get incorporated into our own DNA, but it still acts as a recipe then, tells our cells to make spike protein, stick it on the surface, and immune system can start making a target. So uh, talk to me about the Johnson & Johnson, the efficacy. Um, does it mitigate symptoms? Does it prevent transmission? It, it does seem to, to mitigate symptoms. Again, their first measure of efficacy for the emergency use approval here in the U.S. was simply mitigating symptoms. Not quite as good as the mRNA vaccines. Um, maybe around 80%. I've seen different papers where it's kind of bobbed back and forth, but I think you'd be safe enough to say 80 to 85%. So it's fairly good. Uh, there's not as much information yet published on does it stop transmission? Does it lower the death rate or hospitalization rate and so on? It looks like it does from some early work, we're still kind of waiting for them to publish to more out. information about that. Yeah. A couple of things that have made it, for some people, a more attractive vaccine is it's one shot right. instead of two yep. for the Moderna and the Pfizer. So you go in to get your, your Pfizer or Moderna shot, you'll get one shot, and then three or four weeks later, you need to get the second shot. Johnson & Johnson is, is one shot so far. Uh, and it looks like it's also somewhat effective against even the Delta variant and some of these other variants and so on. Yeah. How about safety concerns with Johnson & Johnson? I know we've heard some things about blood clots and whatnot, but uh, right. what's, what's, what is the science, uh, what is the published science telling you about that? There, there do seem to be a few more concerns, we'll just say, with the, the viral vector vaccines. So Johnson & Johnson, as well as AstraZeneca, there have been some, some data that show that in some populations or in some subsets that it might tend to induce some blood clots that can go to your brain. Now, that doesn't mean it's, it's a high risk sort of thing. If we just look at that aspect, it's still a fairly low frequency, but it's enough that they have started to say, well, certain people maybe shouldn't get Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, these viral vector vaccines. They're still trying to figure out why it even might cause that kind of reaction. But uh, there is some hesitancy, I know, for some people because of that aspect. It, that tends to show up more in females than males uh, and certain age groups that it might affect more. And so yeah, bottom line is, as you consider these, you know, and you're wanting to know something about that, talk to your doctor and find out the, the exact information for your particular for case. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, actually, I have to thank you because that, that discussion for the past, you know, about MR, mRNA technology and viral vector technology for a dope like me, that actually made sense. So th there's your there's your teacher coming back again. So this is good. All right, next question, and this is my this is Joe's personal money question number two. If someone has tested positive for COVID nineteen and recovered, do they need a vaccine? And the science says mm, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those that 
and, and so so let me just lay it out. There's some papers that have, have looked at the, the antibody levels in people who have had a COVID-19 infection versus people that maybe hadn't, but got, let's say, an mRNA vaccine. And I saw one paper that said they're pretty much the same in terms of amount. And then the next paper came up and it said, yeah, it's about half as good if you'd been previously infected. And you probably should get a shot. And then another paper came up and said, yeah, maybe it's a little lower if you've been previously infected. Not a great deal. But what we found was if you still got one shot, maybe not the two, but got one, you could boost your levels of antibodies up. Uh, they're looking also at, well, do they react the same against, say, variants? Uh, are the antibodies reacting in the same way? Probably so. You know, there's sort of a, a qualified yes at this point. Again, all of this is a work in progress, and, and we're trying to keep our our eyes open to the latest scientific evidence as it comes up. Bottom line, it probably wouldn't hurt to get one shot of the two, even if you've had the previous infection. One thing you didn't ask is, well, then how long are, is your immunity going to last if you've had a previous infection or if you've gotten the vaccine? Eh, we don't know because we haven't had long enough to study. Again, back to you know people that have been infected or even the very first clinical trial participants. It's been a year, over a year. It looks like it lasts at least that long. Yeah, but you can't tell. Yeah, and another question that came to mind as you were speaking there, I, I've heard people, and I'm, I'm asking you, I'm not, I'm not trying to challenge you on this. I'm, I'm just trying, I'm asking. I've heard people say that the antibody tests really are not all that um, reliable. Is that? Can can you speak to it's, that? Uh, there's mixed efficiency. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> I wouldn't rely just on that. I mean, it, it gives you a ballpark. Okay. And, and so if you're going, hey, I. I was infected with COVID-19 six months ago. I'm really, maybe I'm thinking about, I don't know if I want to get the vaccine, but I feel like I should. So fine, go ahead and get an antibody test. It'll give you some ballpark. That's just another point to inform your conscience about a future decision. Well stated. All right, switching gears. Um, so a very important and controversial issue that we at the NCBC are dealing with literally as we speak today, David, uh, is the question of mandated COVID-19 vaccines. And I know that as an educational nonprofit, the Charlotte Lozier Institute cannot advocate for any specific legislation, and I'm not going to ask you to, but can you discuss whether the scientific evidence we presently have justifies vaccine mandates? So let me go back to the science because okay. that's where I live and, and that's what I'm going to speak from. And that's why you're here. So the latest, most accurate scientific data, which we were discussing, does show that the vaccines are effective. And that includes against the, the new Delta variant, which is which is why people are becoming more anxious. We'll just put it yes. that way. Yes, absolutely. And, and discussing these. But 
you know, that scientific data doesn't account for a whole host of reasons, legitimate reasons, why someone might choose not to get vaccinated. And, and there are there are medical reasons mm-hmm. that some people might not be candidates for a vaccine. And there are certainly ethical yep. and conscience reasons that people might not feel that it's appropriate for them and their family and their community. I mean, and I understand people's hesitancy. Nobody likes to be forced Mm -hmm. to do something. It's much better to educate people on the particular risks and responsibilities, Mm -hmm. inform their conscience and, and, let that take hold. Right. And that's basically the position of the NCBC as well, too. So, all right, changing gears once again, let's talk briefly about masks. Um, Can you evaluate the use of masks from a scientific perspective? And essentially the question is, do masks help prevent the spread of COVID-19? Well, for masks, the science is not nearly as clear. (laughs) It, it hasn't been on, clear so far on, on a lot of stuff so far. So Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, we, we've got pretty good scientific evidence on it. efficacy of vaccines right. yeah, that's, yeah. And, and so on and so forth. There's not nearly the, the clarity, shall we say, in terms of masks. And that's partly because there's so many different types of masks. If somebody says, hey, you ought to wear a mask. What kind should I wear? Should I wear an N95 or a KN95 or should I wear a gaiter or should I wear cloth or should I wear paper or how many layers should I have? or How tight should the fiber weave? What should it be polypropylene or should it be, you know, should it be an N9500 respirator? You, you can just lose your mind looking at all of the variables within there. Uh, but, you know. And it's because of that that the science is not clear. There are different qualities of masks and so on. So, hey, N95 masks, the sort of uh, gold standard, if you will, for medical personnel. They're the kind that seal very tightly around your face. They have a little clip to go around the nose. Some of them even have a little vent yep. to you breathe those. in yep. and out. There's good evidence that those will protect the wearer as well as those around the wearer. And the N95 is it, it screens out 95% of a certain size particle, uh, 0.3 micron, if you want to be precise here, but or yeah. geeky. Yeah, exactly. But the point is that, that it will tend to screen both and protect me if I'm wearing one and somebody around me, even if I've got a COVID-19 infection and I'm coughing up a lung, but if I've got a good, well-fitted N95 mask, you can be around me and, and, and feel relatively safe. Then you start moving beyond the sort of medical grade mask to the paper mask and the cloth mask and, and all these other kinds of things. And, and it depends so much on the weave of the cloth and, you know, what, you know, what are they made of? And, and, how tight are the fibers and so on that the best thing you might be able to say is they probably do a good uh, good job of screening droplets the particles you know when 
you've probably seen those high speed, you yeah, know, yeah. light enhanced yep. things. Somebody coughs or sneezes and you see this terrible looking spray. Well, those are those are droplets and aerosol particles and and most masks, even some of the kind of you know, dodgy ones, we'll just call them, probably would protect those around you if you had one of those on and you're coughing and spitting up and so on. Though I, I still, if you start to cough, I'm probably going to move away from you. Whether they would protect you if you're uninfected from somebody around you you probably would screen out a certain amount of those aerosols and well, but it's not going to be a hundred percent. I mean, it, I've been trying to look through all of that literature and it is indeterminate in terms of the actual efficacy. One thing I, I would like to point out, and this is a perfect opportunity is that there are lots of different ways to mitigate getting an infection. There's uh, there's out there, and some of your listeners might have even seen this online, what's called the Swiss cheese respiratory virus defense. So here's, here's your visual. Think about a slice of Swiss cheese. It's got some holes in it. Well, but if you start slicing through that block of cheese, you're going to come to the holes are at different places. So you start lining up slices and you might get through slice one, two, three. But then in a straight line, you start to run into solid cheese someplace down the line. The holes are different places. And the idea here is no one thing is 100 percent effective at protecting you. Includes vaccines. That includes N95 masks anything else. And so the idea is you need to consider, again, with an informed conscience for your particular situation, your family and community, what kinds of different cheese slices might I put up here? So, you know, it might be masks. It might be vaccines. It might be I'm just going to stay as far away from you as possible. It might be I'm going to quarantine, especially right. if, of course, I've got an infection of COVID-19, right. but you try and put several of these little cheese slices together to increase your chances or, of, of preventing or decrease your risk of getting that, that, that infection. That infection, yeah. You know, you said something um, about masks. You, you, you uh, indicated that the N95 masks were kind of the best masks to use. The airline will remain anonymous. I will not reveal who it is, but there was a certain airline that I have flown who made it very clear that they did not accept N95 masks on their planes. The only masks that they would accept were the, you know, the, 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 the blue, you know, the pale blue, yeah, the, whatever, the, the and they would give them to you. But there were people who had N95 masks and they said, you can't get on the plane with an N95 mask. <laughs> yeah, that's, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of um, myths, shall we say. And, and a lot of it comes down to fear and distrust as well. Let's be honest yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, but it just, it governmental just... entities, shall we say, CDC, FDA, among them, there was a recent poll that half of Americans don't trust the CDC and FDA. Well, that's a big problem because they should earn our trust, certainly, we should be able to turn to them. But 
you know, there's been too much politics played and, and, and too much uh, flip-flopping, shall we just say, yep. in yep. terms of things that, that it's hard to know who to trust. And, and for whatever reason, this particular airline had listened to the wrong people and had some weird idea about one mask versus another. Yeah. Uh, craziness. All right. Uh, next question. So death rates from COVID-19 appear to have fallen, um, you know, even with the latest rise in cases with the Delta variant and everything else. And question is, why is this? Is, is it the vaccines or is our healthcare system doing a better job of treating people who have COVID or is some, some combination of the two? What, what does the science say? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's probably a combination of things. I think vaccines weigh heavily in here in terms of decreasing the death rate and, and decreasing hospitalizations. But you're starting to see hospitalizations go back up now with the Delta variant spreading around certain areas. Yeah, what and just to, just to clarify. In terms of reports is those hospitalized people tend to be unvaccinated. Um, I think we are getting better. Our hospital personnel are getting better at treating people. They don't just slap people on a respirator or a ventilator now. Uh, but there's still a lot of uncertainty about whether this or that particular drug works or does it work better early on versus later on and so on. The antibody drugs, all the various things people keep talking about. Uh, and of course, you know, I think we've kind of learned through this process. I know we're tired of it, but, you know, you'll see people being more cautious. Uh, and whether it's, I am in a big crowd and so-and-so over here is coughing, I'm going to put on a mask until I get back out away from people, or I'm just going to stay at a distance from people. You know, our, our behavioral patterns have a lot to do now with the success. But again, that, that comes back to individual responsibility. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So uh, my next question, we could actually, we could probably have a whole podcast on this, but I, I'd like you to, to respond to it as briefly and succinctly as you can. So an, an issue that has come up in NCBC consults um, is the use of these abortion-derived cell lines in common pharmaceutical or even other products. And I'm wondering, can you tell us how prevalent is this, if, if at all? And is there any way for people to, to determine whether the products they're using have a connection to abortion-derived cell lines? Yeah, yeah. and it's there's an array <laughs> of answers. Uh, it's not just a yes or no. So mm -hmm. there are a disappointingly large number of products that at some point, Mm -hmm. probably had a connection to an abortion-derived cell line. It's very disappointing. As we have started to look at this, because we get those questions a lot, yep. and it's a matter of when you say, can somebody determine it, it, it unfortunately is not easy to determine. And somebody will say, what about this particular drug that, that my doctor wants to prescribe for me? And I'm very yep. often it's a yep. it's cancer drug of some yep. kind. So there's, there's some significant 
um, decision making that needs to go on there. You start, you end up having to go back to the scientific papers. First place you can start, though, is the FDA sheet on any approved drug. FDA has all these on their website. You go, you look up that particular one, you see uh, what's called the, the fact sheet or the ingredient list or whatever. If you go to item, usually it's item number 11, the description, and it will talk in some detail about what's in this drug and how it was made. It's hmm. good information. Now, what you find out is a lot of drugs nowadays don't use those abortion-derived cell lines. But so does that mean that it never did? Well, the problem then is you have to go digging back through the scientific papers and how they initially designed this or how it was first made or how it was tested to find out. And that's where it becomes more disappointing because you find a lot of compounds where at some point in time in the past, somebody said, yeah, let's test it, but let's test it using abortion-derived cells. Uh, you know, it's again a matter of how remote or how close is the connection and so on. If what's being made now really is being made in like Chinese hamster cells and, and, and they're none. You know, most people would stop there and not go digging back into the history. At some point in time, though, there are a lot of compounds that have had some even grazing connection and so on. I know that I've seen a couple of lists put out where they've claimed even some very benign sorts of things. Yeah, I, I question some of that uh, and how how close or even how remote even those connections were. There's another aspect of this in terms of testing too, not involving the abortion-derived cells, but involving what are called humanized mice. Mm. And and these yep. are made using, they, they're not, you know, don't get a vision of Mickey Mouse talking to you or anything like that. It's not that kind of humanizing. What they've done or the type that, that, is of the most concern is they put a human immune system into a mouse. Now, there's a good reason to do that. So you can test all these things on the mouse and not do all your experiments on human beings. And you can make lots of these in different ways. There's no sort of ethical problem if your starting human material is licitly derived. So they've taken tumors from patients put them into the mouse to study how do we treat human tumors, but testing it on the mouse. But there are some humanized mice, and especially the ones that are the immune system type, where the way they're made starts with illicit material. They start with aborted babies' tissues. Usually it's thymus gland and liver, sometimes some bone marrow, sometimes some other things. And unfortunately, some companies have tested their compounds. They haven't made them with abortion-derived cells, but they have tested them on those particular types of humanized mice. So there's another connection that, you know, 
weighs on us and so on. Um, yeah, we, we could spend a lot of time going through this. I know, sorry, I've spent probably more than you wanted to no, at this, this is... point, but uh, bottom line, it, it start first just with the, that data sheet on the FDA website. If you really want to dig into the past, you're probably going to have to contact the Charlotte Lozier Institute and some of my colleagues and have us go digging back through unless you can speak science. Right. All right. Final question. And we've we've taken a lot of your time today, David, and, and we really appreciate it. But we spent a lot of time today discussing COVID-19 vaccines, which we should. Um, but Charlotte Lozier is involved in so much more. Can you give us briefly a rundown of some of the other major projects you're working on? And in fact, maybe uh, some previews of future podcasts. Great. Love to. And I just want to mention, though, that, you know, please do check out our website, LozierInstitute.org. Say uh, that again in case somebody didn't get that. LozierInstitute.org. L-O-Z-I-E-R Institute.org. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, link that in the show notes, too. So we'll, I, we'll have I it there. But I uh, just want to make sure we get that in again. It, we've had over 600,000 web hits on just that vaccine chart. So thanks for passing it on to your 600,000 friends, Joe. Well, 100,000 of them are probably from me, so. <laughs> but but we do have a lot of other information. We are involved in a lot of other projects. Again, remember our, our uh, phrase, science and statistics for life. So just a few of the recent things that we've been involved with. Your listeners might have heard about this up and coming Supreme Court case called the Dobbs case. Mississippi abortion law that was challenged in court has come to the Supreme Court. We've got a number of scholars who have weighed in on that in different ways, whether in terms of an amicus brief and the science that shows, for example, Fetal pain occurs as early as 12 weeks in the womb. We've got uh, scholars who have looked at how does the U.S. compare to other countries in terms of our abortion laws versus others. One of our scholars in the past had shown that the U.S. was one of only seven countries in the world that allowed for unfettered abortion right up to birth. We were in company with like China, Vietnam, a few other uh, obviously not very human rights friendly mm. countries. To say the least. Yeah. Uh, most recently, though, this scholar has also shown that 47 out of 50 European nations limit abortion prior to 15 weeks, which is the date under discussion with, with the Dobbs case. Now, you know, there are, there are a lot of folks uh, who have a more liberal ideology, we'll phrase it that way, who think we ought to be looking to Europe in terms of our policies. Well, I would agree with them on this, <laughs> that we should start moving that time back and so on. Uh, another thing, we've got uh, we've got a whole group of top flight scholars, Dr. Jim Studnicki being the leader of this group, who are on that statistics beat 
have just been pumping out peer-reviewed papers and all sorts of other information almost regularly. They've now got a series of groundbreaking papers where they've looked at actual Medicaid data. And, you know, a lot of the, the narratives from the, the folks who are pushing abortion or the abortion industry itself, they're based on pretty small samples uh, and they're kind of their own narrative that they'd like to, to tell. Dr. Stadnicki and his team have looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of data points. And, oh, by the way, you know, that whole thing about, yeah, you could use abortion as sort of planning your family and so on, doesn't happen. In fact, abortion begets abortion. Right, yeah. And, and their data just keeps going on and on and on. Uh, other sorts of things uh, your listeners might have heard recently about uh, the babies in a bottle experiment. Yes, uh, they're pushing the envelope here in that they want to be able to grow human beings, human embryos in the laboratory for as long as they want. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, if you haven't read uh, Brave New World in a while, go back and refresh your memory on that, where people were grown in vats and decanted, and then they were modified along the way. Well, uh, the International Society for Stem Cell Research recently came out with their guidelines, and of course, uh, self-interested guidelines, basically <laughs> saying that scientists should be able to grow human beings in the lab, human embryos for as long as they want, and you should be able to do genetic engineering of human beings, and you should be able to, to clone them, or you should be able to do you know, lots of sorts of horrific experiments. But we've been watching that and we've been speaking into it on the other side of the issue as well. So uh, there are a whole host of things that we're out there doing. This is just a thumbnail sketch, but I am looking forward to uh, you having some of our other scholars on to, to talk about some of these in the future. Absolutely. I'm, and I hope we, uh, I hope we have you come back as well too. Love to do it. This was fun. I had a good time. I did too. Dr. David Prentice, thank you for joining me on Bioethics On Air. Thank you, Joe. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.